Let's turn to Romans chapter 9, please. Should we have canceled tonight, Tony? All right. Forgot to ask you. Yeah. No, not. No, it wasn't. I didn't. I never. I wouldn't do that. I'm not a snowflake. Romans chapter 9. This is the last time I'm going to announce this this year, a Treasures for Children campaign. One more time. Load up the sleigh. And what's that? Heart and lit, not yours. No. <laughs> he asked if they accept heart or liver. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Don got it. He patrols Oakmont. He's all right. Now, early birthday, Christmas present, rather. Keep thinking birthday because the oldest deacon that ever lived his birthday is today. Maurice de Simone is the oldest deacon that ever lived. Pam's giving me a thumbs down. Um, early Christmas present, and it's Sunday morning's message in sort of a transcript form. What is faith? And I even drew a little picture for you in there, looks like. Print it out today. Please read it because it's really one of the most essential teachings that we've had from the pulpit in a long, ever. So, what is faith? Faith as Jesus Christ himself. Tonight, I want to consider the rock of offense and the rescuer, one and the same person. A rock of offense and the rescuer. Romans chapter 9. Let's have a word of silent preparation. Father, together we recognize that today was declared a national day of mourning for President George Herbert Walker. Bush, and with this country, we do mourn the loss of not only a servant of this nation, a patriot, and a war hero, but a servant of Christ, a servant of your son. And we can only imagine his homecoming as being far more glorious than anything in this country or anything in this world that he's ever witnessed and We're grateful for the family that has served our country. We pray that you'll continue to bless and comfort all the family. And we thank you that his life leaves a legacy, but we also thank you that his death brought peace to our country for at least a few days, where it seems that ideological bitterness was stilled and quieted just for a little while. And we remember him with fondness and with the recognition of his gentleness and graciousness as a man, not only as a president. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of the freedom that's been maintained 
through the service of many, not just in statesmen, but in military service. For we have freedom that's unusual in our time, and it's still being maintained by your grace and your kindness. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity that we have to meet in such a free nation, to worship as our conscience dictates, but more as you have called us to do, Father, for you seek worshipers in spirit and in truth, and that's what we're here for. We worship you in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. We worship you in the truth that's embodied in him, and we pray that you will allow us to receive tonight the word of grace that's able to build us up and to grant us even now a foretaste of the inheritance that we will have in our homecoming. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. And I want to reiterate the translation from last Wednesday. We got as far as the end of the chapter in Romans 9. Paul is saying this in response to some objections that started in verse 27, went through 29. Paul said, what shall I, Paul, say in response to this? How about this? The Gentiles who were not actively pursuing a status of rectitude That's what I call God-approved livingness. They were not pursuing a status of God-approved livingness. They have apprehended that status, but it is a rectitude that is from faith. Ek pistios here, as we've seen, a key catchphrase in Romans, Romans 117 and 326 especially, dia pistios and ek pistios, both meaning on the basis of Messiah's fidelity, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Why did Israel not attain this rectitude? Because they were not pursuing it on the basis of faithfulness, that is, Christ's faithfulness, but on the basis of works. That is in compliance with the law of Moses. While pursuing, they struck their foot against the stone that trips people up, as it is written. Now, this is the 11th time out of 14 times in Romans the Epistle. 14 times in Romans the Epistle, we have another catch phrase, which in the Greek looks like this kathos, kathos which means just as or even as, kathos gegraptai, G-E-G-R-A-P-T-A-I, kathos gegraptai. And that means just as it stands written or just as it is written. And again, 14 times numerically is two times seven, two being the number for witness, seven being the number of perfection. God is giving a perfect witness about his crucified and risen son in Romans the epistle. Kathos even as it is written, that is, in the scriptures, 
or in the writings of the prophets, which again is a phrase that brackets all of Romans, Romans 1, 2 and 16, 26. So he says, as it is written, look, this is Yahweh speaking through Isaiah. Here we have a conflation or a fusion of two verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 28, 16, fused with Isaiah 8, 14, where Yahweh says, look, I am laying in Zion. The word laying or tithemi, which means to place, means to lay a foundation stone. Look, I am laying a stone in Zion that makes people trip. It's a rock of offense. And this is very important. I wanted to slow down a little bit on this because it's extremely important. A stone that makes people trip, it's a rock of offense. That word offense is where we get our word scandal. In fact, it is scandalon. Scandalon, S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N. The most famous use of that, I think, in Paul is Galatians 5.11. In order to avoid the scandal of the cross, they preach circumcision. In order to avoid the scandal of the cross, the offense of the cross, the, the cross is it an offense in many ways, especially toward those who are zealous for a religion of human merit. Scandalon here then refers to the crucified Christ. Look, I am laying in Zion. And please notice that phrase, in Zion. I didn't see this until today. In Zion. I'm laying a stone in Zion that makes people trip. It's a rock of offense. Petron Scandalon. P-E-T-R-A-N. You can go all kinds of places with this Petron, where Peter gets his name, Pet- Petros, and on this rock I will build my church. You can go to First Peter chapter 2 and read about P- tripping over the stone. And it's better to trip over it than to have it fall on you and crush you to dust. And the, the metaphor goes into a thousand different directions. But I want to stick with this. Look, behold, I am laying a stone in Zion that makes people trip or stumble. It's a rock of offense. Petron Scandalon, and that's the crucified Christ. But those who believe in him will not be put to shame. Those who believe in him, the stone and the rock is a him, H-I-M, a person. Now, to give you an idea of what has been called a difficult passage, Romans chapters 9 through 11, the whole section. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul first makes a case for the Gentiles. He makes a case for the Gentiles and seemingly against Israel. He carries on with this. It seems to be against Israel, seemingly, especially in Romans chapters 9 and 10 in the main. In the main part, he seems to be presenting a case in defense of the Gentiles and seemingly against Israel. He then makes a case for Israel and seemingly against the Gentiles. In Romans 11, 1 through 24, by and large, this is only by and large he does it. 
And he does this to show that God's plan was all along to show mercy to both Gentiles and Israel, and by doing so, to fulfill the promise made to Abraham, which is brought more into focus in Galatians. The promise made to Abraham that in his seed, Christ, all the nations, including Israel, will be blessed. That is, with the promised Holy Spirit. The blessing of Abraham is the blessing that God promised to all the nations in his seed. And that blessing is specifically the Holy Spirit. We'll see that more in Galatians, but also in Romans 8. So, Paul's pastoral purpose, his purpose as an apostle, but also his purpose as a shepherd who knows the state of his flock. The number one requirement, I think, of relationship between a pastor and his congregation is found, metaphorically speaking, in Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-three. It says, know very well the state of your flocks. And Paul had many flocks, and he knew their state. He knew the state of the Galatian flocks. There were several churches there. And he knew that they were imperiled and greatly endangered by a false gospel. And similarly in Romans, although the case isn't quite so urgent, it's nevertheless still there. Paul's pastoral purpose in Romans, the epistle, and to present these two arguments is to demolish barriers, and I've said this probably 50 times, but I want it to come across, demolish barriers constructed by biases held by Jewish Christians in Rome and elsewhere. This fans out everywhere. On the one hand, and Gentile Christians in Rome and elsewhere on the other hand. With this purpose in hand then, and once we understand by doing this little intentionality analysis of what Paul's up to here, we have, I think, a crucial tool for the interpretation of what otherwise would be a hard-to-understand passage. Romans is filled with it, 9 through 11 especially, and as Second Peter 3:15 to 16 says, there are many who distort the epistles of Paul they, because there's in them some things that are just plain hard to understand. And so what my purpose is is to present under the theological functional specialty of interpretation, tools that help us see. And what I see as we come into the Delta phase of Romans is a clear manifestation of Jesus Christ and him crucified as the interpretive key. The key that unlocks the interpretation of scripture is cruciform. It's shaped like a cross. It's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 9 then ends with Israel right here in 930 to 33. It ends with Israel generally not finding what it so strenuously pursued. What, the, what it strenuously uh, pursued here is G-A-L, my acronym for God-approved livingness. They pursued it by the works of the law, so they could never find it. They never did find it. The frustration was compounded infinitely by their tripping over a stumbling stone that God laid in Zion. 
as a master architect, we could say. What, it's kind of a strange paradox. Why would the builder and maker, God, lay a foundation stone that trips people up? Well, you trip over this stone, you fall right into the arms of God. So underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33, 27, I think. I haven't read that in about 12 years, but I know it's there. So notice that God laid, as an architect would lay a foundation stone, God laid a tripping stone Deliberately so that people would trip over it. And this same tripping stone is called a rock of scandal. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, the rock was Christ in the wilderness. The rock that gave water to the people of Israel that Moses merely spoke to and it provided water for Israel in the desert. Moses was chided and disciplined for striking the rock, as we know, but the rock was Christ. Similarly, this rock of offense is Christ. The rock of offense is none other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. To the Greeks, just plain stupid, just plain foolish, a foolish tale. But to those who are being saved, they perceive it as the very power of God. Not only perceive it as the power of God, they experience that preaching as the power of God because Christ is both the wisdom and the power of God. But there we're sliding over to Corinthians. Let's stick with Romans. Now, Please notice this, and I'm going carefully, proceeding carefully here as an important, important technique of teaching, because this frustration, again, is compounded, not helped by God, but compounded by tripping them over a stumbling stone that he laid in Zion, in Israel, in the heart of Israel. Christ was crucified right outside the gate in Jerusalem, in Zion. God laid a foundation stone in Zion where Christ was crucified. In fact, the crucified Christ is the tripping stone. But notice, and again, I've been doing this throughout. It's like firing an arrow into Romans eleven twenty six. Look at Romans eleven twenty six, And I found a new translation for this. So I keep tweaking it every time I look at it. It says, and without further ado... It's often translated, and then, or and so, or in this manner. But without further ado, that is immediately following something else, which is verse 25, and that is the pleroma of the nations, all the Gentiles coming in. This always strikes up with me the image of the always open gates, the 12 gates three on each of four sides in the cubic city of Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. The gates are always open and they're never shut. And there's pilgrimages of kings and nations coming in with their glory. And that's what Romans 11.25 talks about. We'll get to that again some other time. But when the fullness, and that's that famous word, 
Pleroma, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, Pleroma. And it looks like this if we were to do it in English characters, English alphabetical characters. There's an accent here, the, or the long E, the long O, Omicron, Omega, and Eta, Pleroma. When the pleroma of the nations comes in, and that means the totality. Pleroma doesn't just mean a whole bunch. It means the totality without exception. All the nations. When all the nations come in, then without further ado, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. As it is written. As it is written. This is actually the 11th use. The one in Romans was the 8th use. I got my uses mixed up. But as it is written, kathos gegratai again in Romans 11.26. The 11th of 14 deployments of that phrase, kathos gegratai, in Romans the epistle. Please notice what he says. I'm sure you see it already. From Zion, the rescuer will come. The Savior, the Deliverer, the Liberator, all of those work, but it's strictly the Rescuer. From Zion, I will lay in Zion a tripping stone, and from the same Zion, a Rescuer will come. The stone that trips them up is the same one who comes to rescue them. From Zion, the Rescuer will come, he will remove ungodliness, and that, friends, is what we call the Adamic ontology, ungodliness. He will remove the Adamic ontology from Jacob. Jacob is a name for Israel according to the flesh. He will remove, takes it right away, takes it out and away, ungodliness from Jacob. This is a quote of Isaiah 59.20, just so that you know that we're dealing with kathos gegraptai, with things that are written in the words of the prophets. Indeed, 27, God goes on to say, and this is another conflation or a fusion of two verses, Isaiah 59.21 and Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, really that whole section on the new covenant. Indeed, he says, this is when I fulfill my covenant. With them, that is, when I take away their sins. All of Israel will be saved because all of Israel has been effectively saved in the Christ event during which, that Christ event being the crucifixion of Jesus primarily, followed by resurrection, during that event, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. This is to speak then eschatologically and not simply historically. God laid the tripping stone where? In Zion. The tripping stone is also the foundation stone. There's no contradiction between the tripping stone that he lays in Zion, and 1 Corinthians 3.10, there is no other foundation than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, because he had some real 
I almost spoke in a colloquial way, screw-ups in Corinth. He He said, I almost didn't say that quite, but, you know, people that mess up, which is all of us and me at times, but no matter how bad you screw up, fire will test your works, but you'll be saved because of the foundation. That's what he t- the whole story in 1 Corinthians 3.10 to 15, which means the fire, the eschatological fire that everyone fears is merely a purifying fire. So from Zion, the rescuer will come. All Israel will be saved or shall be saved because all Israel has been saved in the Christ event during which Christ prayed, Father, forgive them. This is another case of even now, but then completely. God laid the tripping stone in Zion. The tripping stone is also the foundation stone. It's the stone Jesus said that the builder, re- the builders rejected the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, whom Jesus called the Elohim of the time. They were functioning under the Elohim, the council of gods. And he said, doesn't the scripture say you are gods? The Pharisees now stood in the council against God, against Jesus Christ, and rejected the stone. That became the foundation or the head of the corner, which is Christ. Matthew twenty-one forty-four thereabouts. The tripping stone then is also the foundation stone. None other than Jesus Christ. No other foundation can ever be laid than that which God has already placed. But this stone is also a rock of offense. And the rock is Christ. Again, the word scandalon for offense and for stumbling, both. It means both offense or scandal and stumble. People stumble because of scandal. In Galatians 5.11, the cross of Christ is called to scandalon to staru. Let me just write that just because this is what I actually see when I study these things. T.O., the article, which should be translated generally the or the, to Scandalon, and then to T O U, another article of the Stauru, S T A U R O U. You should be familiar with that or getting familiar with it. Stauru, to Scandalon to Stauru, which is the offense of the cross, the offense that the cross is to people for various reasons. It is from Zion, where Christ was crucified, that the rescuer comes, the liberator, the deliverer. So I just hope you piece these two things together. In Zion, I lay a tripping stone and a rock of offense, Petron Scandalon, the crucified Christ. But from or to Zion, or from Zion... The rescuer comes. The same one who is the crucified Christ becomes the eschatological rescuer of all of Israel. Takes away ungodliness right out of them. He promised to do that in another metaphorical way in Ezekiel. 
36:26 when God said, "I will remove and take out the stony heart within them and place instead a heart of flesh." And I will take the old spirit out of them, put a new spirit in them. Not only that, but in 27, I'm going to put my spirit in them and cause them to walk according to my ordinances, which is love. Cause them to walk in love. So, It is from Zion where Christ was crucified that the rescuer comes to take away the sins of Israel and all the world for that matter. First John 2, 1 and 2. But emphatically here, the sins of Israel, along with all the sins of the world. According to the new covenant that God made with Israel, he removes ungodliness from Jacob, takes it right away. Now this chimes harmoniously with Ezekiel 36, 26, as I said before, where Yahweh promises to take out of them a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Where did this happen? Where will this happen? This will happen universally to all of Israel in all of its times, eras, and epochs at the resurrection. But in effect, it already happened in Colossians 2.11 when what is known as the circumcision of Christ Jesus Christ put off the flesh in his death, which means he took out the ungodliness right out of Jacob, right out of Israel in his death. He not only took away their sins, he took out of them the ungodliness that even voted for his crucifixion. That's something that has to be developed, obviously. At the cross... Jesus already put off the flesh. Now, there's five or six meanings for the word flesh, and I'll be coming up to that also in Romans 8 later on, maybe even as early as Sunday. The Adamic ontology, which is the sum of ungodliness among human beings, the sum of ungodliness of Israel and all of humanity. This new covenant, then, has already been confirmed. This is my blood of the covenant which is shed for many many equals all Matthew 26:28 Matthew 20:28 20, Mark 15:45 1 Timothy 2:6 and Hebrews 2:9 comes to mind by the grace of God he tasted death for every person that he might bring many Sons to glory. Many sons to glory means everybody for whom he tasted death, and that's everybody. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. So this new covenant has already been confirmed with the blood of Jesus Christ. It was at the cross that the new covenant was ratified, confirmed, endorsed, authorized, you might want to say, in order to be manifestly fulfilled at the parousia, another key word, my spell checker just doesn't get it, parousia, the coming of Christ to stay, the coming of Christ to transfigure the universe. That which happened at the cross 
to ratify the covenant is going to be manifestly fulfilled, publicly shown and done right in front of the eyes of all creation at the parousia. So that which is done at the cross will be manifest at the parousia. And that's why even now and not yet completely are two proper phrases. But this new covenant then has already been confirmed with the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. The new covenant was ratified in order to be manifestly fulfilled at the parousia where none other than the crucified Messiah will appear and be seen by all. Every eye will see him, even those that pierced him. Crucified Messiah. Every eye will see him. And that means experience him as salvation. Revelation 1-7. When he comes. The crucified Messiah will appear and be seen by all. Genuflected to by every knee. And sworn allegiance to by every tongue. You can read about it if you want to in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You can read about it in Romans 14, 11. You can find it, kathos gegraptai, even as it is written in Isaiah 45, 23, if you want to. Sunday I'm intending, and I don't know if it will happen, because a lot of stuff happens as soon as I hit my birthing suite, or I give birth to messages. But I'm intending to show that the marriage of apocalyptic theology with universal salvation. Universal salvation has to be married to apocalyptic theology, and it's not good for universal salvation to be alone. That doctrine alone, it's not good for that doctrine to be alone, even as it wasn't good for the man to be alone in God's view. So he made the woman for him. Apocalyptic theology, which I'm going to explain, and it doesn't mean the other two things that people think it means. Apocalyptic theology has to be married to universal salvation. It's not good for either one of them to be alone, but married they produce a phenomenal insight that I think is transforming for the church in the future, if not already. So this is an insight that came to me today, and I'm trying to put these things and articulate them in writing. So for you, just for you, so then, again, I'm proceeding very carefully in this. This is new ground. This is to speak, therefore, eschatologically and not just historically. We are unable, how do you like this sentence? We are unable to escape Jesus Christ and him crucified as our interpretive key. The key for the interpretation of Romans is cruciform, C-R-U-E. C-I-F-O-R-M. That means shaped like a cross. Evidence that this has, in one sense, already been accomplished, that is, the salvation of all of Israel, is that the word for take away 
their sins. The word for take away in the phrase, when I take away their sins, is a word that is, I better, I'm in the mood for doing this tonight, so I will. Aphirao, A-P-H-A-I-R-E-O. Areo means up and away. Af means away. So this is an emphatic word, A-P-H-A-I-R-E-O. Take away their sins. Take them up and away, their sins. Their sins were taken up with Christ and away in his death and resurrection, as ours were, as yours were, as mine was. So the key for the interpretation is always cruciform. It's always Christ and him crucified. So take away in the phrase, when I take away their sins in Romans eleven twenty seven, is related to the taking away, aphirao, same word, aphirao, of sins that was not and could not be accomplished by the blood of bulls and goats, according to Hebrews 10.4, but only by the atoning death of Jesus Christ in which he removed sin by the offering of himself. This time it's not aphireo, but it's a synonym, athetesis, a T-H-E-T-E-S-I-S. Athetesis means to remove, to disannul, to abrogate, to abolish, to obliterate, to annihilate, to do away with altogether, to make not to be. That's what he did in Hebrews 9.26. Now, once and for all, at the axis of two ages, Christ appeared to put away sin by his self-offering, the offering of himself. When did that happen? In the future? No, in the past. So when did God take ungodliness out of Jacob? In the future? No, in the past, but to be manifested in the future. That's where the connection of the first and second advents of Christ, as they're sometimes called, probably wrongly, but the first, the incarnation and the Christ event, and then his universal appearance, where all this becomes apparent to every person that ever lived. Can't wait for that day. Gotta, though. Gotta wait. Sin was removed at the axis of the ages by the offering of himself. The axis of the ages, the juncture of the evil age with the messianic age, was the cross of Christ. Jesus is the axis of the ages. He put away sin by the offering of himself. Now, here's the point. For our message tonight, because the tripping stone and the rock of offense to Israel is also the rescuer of Israel. Then it is eminently clear, very clear that Israel has only stumbled temporarily then. And if you don't believe that, the fact of their temporary stumbling is explicit by Paul in Romans 11.11. Look at Romans 11.11. I already did all this in Better Call Paul, and I'm going to, I've fought with myself over and over again about whether to keep going over this, and I am going to do it, because there's just so much in here that needs to be brought out in order to preserve the truth of the gospel, so I got to do it. Romans 11, 11, so I, again, Paul, say, they have not tripped, 
Notice how the theme holds here. The tripping stone. They have not, who? Israel has not tripped in order to fall down permanently. Have they? The rhetorical question demands a strong negative. Meganoito, of course not. I would actually say to people today, do you think Israel has been forsaken permanently by God? Then I would say this, what kind of God do you think he is? Who do you think he is? Do you think his justice rejoices in permanently rejecting the people that he elected? You might just have an idol instead of God, is what I would say. As my mother used to say, what are they going to do to you? I love that saying. What are they going to do to you? Meaning, who cares? (laughs) On the contrary, by by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. But, verse 12, but if their misstep another word for transgression, is bringing riches to the world. Those are the riches of Christ. And their defeat speaks particularly of Romans, of uh, rather the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Their defeat means riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fullness be? Guess what that word is? Pleroma again. First we have Pleroma, the totality of all the Gentile nations, Pleroma. You have Pleroma, or the totality of the nations. Now Paul speaks about something that he takes for granted, the totality of the salvation of Israel, the totality of Israel. All of Israel and all of its epochs, eras, and times is inevitable. Right now, their stumbling is bringing riches of salvation to the Gentiles, what more do you think is going to happen that's world transforming for everyone when their Pleroma comes? So we got Pleroma of the Gentiles, Pleroma of the Gentiles. Then we have plus the Pleroma of Israel. And that equals U.S., universal salvation. Paul is right on the mark with this all the way through. And so, if their misstep is bringing riches to the world, and the first class condition means, and it is, and their defeat, riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness, which is inevitable, their fullness, their fullness, what's that going to bring them? So here's the practical point, the pastoral point for Paul and for me. No prejudice against Israel can stand up against this ruthless, cruciocentric logic. Cruciocentric, Christ crucified centered logic. From here we can follow Paul's reasoning then into Romans 10. 
where at first he continues the theme of Israel's historical failure to find what they were looking for. He continues that theme and reiterates it. Israel didn't find what they were looking for. And the reason for this is, if I may use a slight quip, they were barking up the wrong tree. They were seeking God-approved livingness at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than at the tree of Calvary, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2.24, where the just one died on behalf of the unjust in 3.18. Romans 10, so he says, brothers and sisters, I already preached this one day in one single day. I already preached this whole chapter and talked about Paul speaking, Moses speaking, the legalistic gospel speaking, and the righteousness of faith speaking, which in part, at least, agrees with Paul's gospel. And we're going to go over it again. But notice as he continues in Romans 10, he doesn't have chapter divisions in his letter. It just goes right from 9.33 to 10.1. Brothers and sisters, the desire of my heart and my petition to God for Israel regards their salvation. So why does Paul pray for a salvation that already occurs in Christ and already is guaranteed for them in Romans eleven twenty six? Because he wants them to have it now. He wants them to experience that salvation now. He wants them right where God would be so glorified to have them have this salvation, his kin. You do. You want members of your family and friends and past associations, you want them to be saved now in the sense that you want them to understand that their salvation is based and founded in the faithfulness of Christ and not in their faith or their continuous faith or their works. You want that, don't you? You don't want it just when they die. You want it now. That's what Paul's talking about. My heart's desire and my petition to God for Israel regards their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, a genuine enthusiasm directed Godward, but that it is not according to knowledge. It is not according to the understanding that came when Jesus Christ came and gave us an understanding that we are in him who is true and that we, and that he is the true God and this is eternal life. It is not according to knowledge because in verse three, being ignorant of God's righteousness, who isn't ignorant of God's righteousness at one time or another, we have found out that God's righteousness isn't just an attribute of his essence, but an act that he enacted in Christ at the cross, his saving act in Christ They are ignorant of the fact that God's righteousness has made Jesus Christ the foundation and has made his faithfulness the means of justification. And so, being ignorant of God's righteousness, which is apocalypsed, dramatically revealed in the gospel in Romans 1.17, they're ignorant of it. And by desiring to establish their own righteousness that means to establish themselves by themselves in what they hope will be a god-approved livingness already your mind is thinking man i got christian friends trying to do that 
So, being ignorant of God's righteousness by, and by desiring to establish their own righteousness, they have not been subordinated to God's righteousness. And look how I translate verse 4. For Christ is, and I put in brackets, rightly perceived as. Christ is rightly perceived as the end of the law. Tell us, Namu, the end of the law as a means for rectitude. He is the end of the law for righteousness or a law. He is the end of the law as being a means to God-approved livingness. So I put it this way. Christ is the end of the law as a means for rectitude. To everyone who believes. That means everyone who believes perceives that Christ is the end of any kind of human merit to reach God approved livingness. Not only the law, the works of the law of Moses, but any kind of human meritorious accomplishments. Here, as always, then, in Paul, the great contradiction is between Jesus Christ and and the law and thus between Jesus Christ and him crucified which we call his faithful death after Deboer called it that and it's in tonight's printout which I pray that you will read I don't pray to you I pray to God my prayers and thoughts never go out to you my thoughts might be about you but my prayers are to God about you I don't I don't like it when someone says, my prayers go out to you. What the hell for? I can't answer them. Don't tell me your prayers go out to me. Tell me your prayers go to the throne of grace for me if you want. I don't want you tossing your prayers at me. So, nor do I want you to think that I should pray because I got a better line to God. Because I don't. We all have the Best line ever to God, and it's Jesus Christ. So then, my thoughts don't even go out to you. I'm sending my thoughts to you. See, the, the New Age people, the wrong New Age people, think that if they send a positive thought to you, it's gonna, you're going to be sitting in your room depressed, and all of a sudden you go, I feel so good now. I received a thought from my snowflake friend across the city. And the thought is, never say bacon again, because it's offensive to PETA. So don't say bring home the bacon. That's actually a thing now. You can't say that, because people are offended. Bring home the bacon. And that thought was sent to me through, so you know what it makes me want to do? Get a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich at Arby's. Here then, now let's close, I know. It doesn't take much to go right off the rails here. (laughs) So I'm going to close. It's not between two human things. The contradictory thing that's going on is not between two human things, like human works and human believing, both of which are human accomplishments. The contradiction is between God's accomplishment Versus any human accomplishment, whether works of the law or believing. 
as a means of justification. In other words, believing doesn't justify us. But when he says we come to believe in Christ, do you know what we come to believe? We come to believe that we are justified by Christ's faithfulness, not our faith. That's what our faith is. Our faith comes to believe in Christ, that he is the basis and the means of our justification. And that really divides Christians, and I don't mean in a, in a bad way, but it divides Christians. There's Christians who believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's great. But there are also Christians whose faith is that Christ's faithfulness justified them, not their believing. And so that's really faith that begins to participate in Christ's fidelity. That's really what we call the obedience of faith. So, Christ is only perceived as being the end of the law by those who believe, because faith is a means of perception. Faith allows us to perceive that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, or as a means to rectitude. Or a means to justification. Meaning, only those whom God has gifted with faith that Christ's faithfulness is the means of justification. See him as the end of the law. He's also the end of you having to believe as a means of justification. He is the means of our justification. Our faith simply recognizes that. God's righteousness is apocalyptically revealed by the gospel. God's righteousness is unfurled, to use Song of Solomon's language, it's unfurled like a banner of love from his own faithfulness to Christ's faithfulness and then to our graced participation. I kind of invented that. I don't know, somebody else probably said it before, but I thought of that today and I like the term graced. G-R-A-C-E-D dash participation, one word or hyphen, graced participation. So again, Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith means from God's own faithfulness to Christ's faithfulness and then to our graced participation with Christ's faithfulness. Graced participation with Christ's faithfulness is... God-approved livingness. God-approved livingness. This graced, graced participation is called the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is that which Paul was given. And it was what he was given along with grace and apostleship in Romans 1.5. To me was given grace and apostleship to what? To bring about the obedience of faith in all the nations. To bring about a God-approved livingness among all the nations, all the Gentiles, as an apostle to the Gentiles. And then he magnified that beyond the nations to Israel too. The obedience of faith is that which Paul was given grace and apostleship to bring about in all the nations. And how does he bring it about? He's a man. He doesn't bring it about. He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
which in turn evokes, elicits, kindles, or even gifts people with faith. Faith comes by hearing or the message. Akoe, the report. And the report is the message about Christ. And so, the obedience of faith is that which Paul was given grace and apostleship to bring about in all the nations by the proclamation of Jesus and him crucified. Paul's preaching brought about the obedience of faith in all the nations as a preview that at Jesus Christ's second advent or parousia, all the nations, including Israel, all people of all times and all epochs will also be brought to that obedience of faith and live in a faith that works by love throughout the ages in resurrection bodies. That's all right with me. So, that gospel, Christ and him crucified, is still foolishness to some intellectuals and philosophers and Christians and theologians, and it's still offensive. But what are they going to do to you? It's still offensive to those who are zealous for a religion rooted in human merit. It's still offensive. For me, this is the last thing I'll say tonight. For me, and for you, I'll be bold enough to say, for me, and for you who believe that Christ's faithfulness is the basis of our justification in God's sight. For us, Christ is the end of any kind of law for righteousness, any kind of human merit for righteousness. For me, and I hope for you, Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians one thirty, And we are the righteousness of God in him who knew no sin and was made to be sin for us. Second Corinthians 5.21. What does it mean that he made us the righteousness of God in him? It means that in him we were crucified. In him being crucified, we died. Dying, we were justified because no one alive can be justified in God's sight. So when Christ died, we died. When he rose, he was justified as we were. So we became the righteousness of God in union with him through the cross because he who knew no sin was made to be sin for on behalf of us because God is that much for us. Thank you, Father. May we graduate into the mentality and the mind of Christ, which Paul had, and may we say and come to the place where we truly say, and it's experiential, for me living is Christ, and to die is gain.